Hi, it's Paul here and welcome to Fat Chat with the Boss, the podcast exploring people's stories, battles and triumph of weight loss and weight gain. Today's guest is Shadow Minister of Public Health and Labour politician Sharon Hodgson. I had a really open and honest discussion with Sharon in her constituency office just outside Newcastle, where she taught me through her whole life and her ongoing battles with her weight, including her very late diagnosis to diabetes and how then, and only then, she decided to make some proactive changes to her lifestyle. I think many will find this chat really, really uplifting. This is Sharon Hodgson on the Fat Chat with the Boss. Well, um, grew up in, in Gateshead, um, born in sort of, given my age away, 1966, so, um, and always lived lived in Gateshead when I was a kid. I was the oldest of, of three kids, so I had two younger brothers, um, mum and dad. Now, they, the big trauma, I suppose, in my um, childhood was when they um, got separated and got divorced. Um, so then I was the only kid um, in my class separated when I was seven and divorced by the time I was ten and back then so sort of early 70s you know people now it's sort of just you know there's lots of divorced families but it honestly wasn't I was the only kid in my class from you know a family where the parents were divorced Um, but what it meant financially I, I suppose uh, was the biggest impact then we were my, my dad had just disappeared and left us and um, we were uh, then on benefits and it wasn't like it is now where people can um, get tax credits and stuff to help them go out to work you were literally because there wasn't many divorced families it was almost like you know the, the system didn't know how to cope with families where they were literally just left and the man had just ran off. I think my mum said at the time she literally got no money for the first six months because it was assumed that the man would come back. Um, anyway, so that was sort of, you know, the, the, the background from sort of a normal, um, comfortable existence when my dad was there, then into sort of, you know, really um, grown up in poverty from the age of then seven till I went out to work when I was 16. But it was very matriarchal as well because there was me mam and me nana and then there was me and my two younger brothers. So they just didn't stand a chance, you know, because um, I, I sort of did, you know, take that bossy role and they'll always talk about how um, how I was bossy. But when I look back, I can, even though, you know, I grew up poor and I was aware I was growing up poor, um, I can never remember any difference with regard to um, access to food from before my dad left to afterwards. Um, my mum obviously, you know, prioritised food. It was really important. So I've got no memories of being hungry or going without or feeling that food was an issue. And I think a lot of that was because she had cooking skills. She could cook. And my nana could cook. You know, so my nana could make... She could, she could make hot pots out of a tin of corned beef... And I don't know how she could make a tin of corned beef stretched to as many hot pots, some potatoes, some onions, a tin of corned beef, and would, you know, there'd be three hot pots come out of it. It was unbelievable. And then she'd still say, do you want a corned beef sandwich? And I'd be going, like, have you got, a, like, a bottomless pit, like that porridge, you know, that story about the bottomless porridge pot? Um, so, you know, the ability to be able to cook, I think, was really important. And so... But the one thing, and this is where sort of I think, so I can't say there was any issue about, you know, I was n- definitely not overweight as a child and I certainly wasn't underweight. Um, but it becomes relevant because I've thought about this and 
the whole time, and my mum has said that, the whole time she was responsible for what I ate, I didn't have a weight problem. So when, obviously, I started working and I had my own money, also, the food at home was very British and very, um, you know, sort of traditionally British food. There'd be hot pots, it'd be dinners. I remember in the 80s when she started experimenting, making um, spaghetti bolognese, as she called it. But looking back, it was sort of mince, mince and gravy with spaghetti. And that was spaghetti bolognese. It didn't say tomato. There wasn't a tomato in it. And um, But we thought that was spaghetti bolognese. And that was as sort of foreign as our food got. So 16, 17, I'm working, got my own money. And then discover takeaways. Because takeaways was not a part of our, our existence growing up. Treats were few and far between. Because, you know, there just wasn't the money for any of that, literally. Because, you know, with living on benefits. So, um but of course then I was working, I had my own money, I could buy my own treats. The first sort of big adventure into foreign food was Italian, going for pizzas with my friends and stuff, and then Chinese takeaway. So, you know, you would go for a night out, and the culture very much is linked. And even now, you know, you would go for a night out, have a few drinks, and then you would get your takeaway on the way home. And so you're already consuming more calories. You know, you've had your meals through the day, your three meals. Then you go out, you're consuming calories in what you're drinking. And then you have your, your takeaway when you get home. So, you know, very soon into your you know, into my 20s, I, I could feel that, you know, I was starting to carry a bit more weight, but I was still sort of no more than a 10, 12. Um, and I was a size 12 when I got married. I met my husband. We were married by the time I was 24. And that is the next sort of catalyst. So I've discovered sort of the ability to be able to buy all these lovely things, going to restaurants, takeaways, lots of exciting flavours and culinary delights um loved cooking you know would learn how to cook a lot of these things because we hadn't cooked those at home is that you'd learn that off your mum yeah just in general uh, so i'd learned the basics of of cooking from my mum but not to make all these foreign delights you know that sort of i had to teach myself so that was fun but then you know you're married and what do you do you 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 go out you're young free sort of young couple both working so you know we had um some disposable income so we would go out we'd cook at home that was good and you know we'd cook huge amounts of food and I suppose um portion control then became the the obvious thing because you just sort of would cook this amount of food and then you'd eat this amount of food and again when you're young you think that you know the weight's never going to be an issue and um and I can remember then sort of in my early 20s sort of slipping up to a size 14 and um, and then maybe even, you know, getting 14 to 16, but being content and happy, then the next thing, children come along. So then you're sort of accept, accepting, well, obviously I'm having children now, so I'm putting weight on because I'm pregnant. And, oh, I haven't lost all that weight, you know, and now I'm pregnant again. Oops, you know, oh, I'll make sure when I finish having the kids, I'll get a grip on it. And then um, I breastfed my kids, so the weight did come off quite quite quickly in between and afterwards um which is one of the the, the things I always say that if, if these young people who resist breastfeeding knew how quickly the weight comes off I, I was never as slim as when I was breastfeeding my second one because I breastfed her up till she was about 15 months and um and that was great but I think then I noticed again when I stopped breastfeeding and went back to eating you know in 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 a normal way Again, the weight slipping back on. But by then, you know, I'm sort of by then, say, my early 30s, and I still, 
you know, I'm married, I've got two kids, you know, I don't mind that I'm a little bit heavier than I used but you'd to already, be. But you'd recognised, at this point though, you were like, oh, well, I'm, I'm overweight, but mm. not yeah. it's fine, you know, I'm so healthy. I, exactly, I'd started to sort of almost get to that acceptance stage that I'm not in my 20s anymore. And the weight had slipped on gradually, you know, you'd put a half a stone on here, you'd put half a stone on, you'd put a half a stone on after each kid and, you know, and then they're toddlers and you put another half a stone on and yet it, it just slips on so so easily that what's that saying they say you only have to eat 50 calories extra a day and and you'll you'll put weight on so you know if you're sort of finishing off the kids food after you've made them it or just just you know having that odd takeaway as a treat which again that I suppose that carried on but not as frequently as perhaps it did when we were younger because I was home I was cooking I gave up work when the kids were little so you know we did have to sort of watch we went down to one wage so there wasn't as much money for sort of those um you know eating out and takeaways but again I was in control of how much food I cooked and what I cooked and how much of that food I ate and um, I was really active. Obviously, I had a baby and a toddler, so I was running around after them. So I would always say I was fit, but um, again, the weight just creeping on and on. And I never really, I was never a yo-yo dieter. I'm still not really um, a yo-yo dieter, although I must get back on my diet after my holiday. I've been on my holiday and sort of had um, had a splurge, so I've got to get control of that. But um, you know, whereas lots of my friends who were having babies were constantly on diets, I had just decided this was the size I am, say if I was a 16, 18 by then, this is the size I am, I'm happy, I'm happily married, my kids, you know, I haven't got time to be worrying about whether I've got the, the perfect figure. I looked good, I always, you know, was able to make myself presentable, always able to buy nice clothes, always able to look good. And I remember people would sort of say, oh, yeah, but, you know, you've got you've got to be careful because, you know, you've got to keep a handle on it because it'll slip on and um, it's much easier to get it off when you're young. And so there would always be almost the, the threat or the worry about deal with it now when you're young. But to me, I was fine. I looked fine. I wasn't worried, I wasn't, and there was that element of sort of pushback against the conforming of society that, you know, you've got to conform, you've got to be this, you know, perfect figure, and and I, you know, and I was like, nah, I don't, there was a bit of that, there was the Ricky Lake time, I don't know if you can remember Ricky Lake and a bit of that sort of, you know, big is beautiful and all of that, and so I'm sort of thinking, yeah, I'm, I've, got, I've still got a good figure, I might be a bit more voluptuous, but never really thinking about the health consequences long term or even about um, the amount of sugar I might be consuming the amount of fat or or whatever or even the amount of calories you know I would sort of think well we're eating good food healthy food it would be a balanced diet and probably the main problem was the amount the amount of calories in as opposed to calories out was sort of felt that because I, I did I had lots of self-confidence and I was confident in how I looked and that you know I was aware that on you know on the beach when it come to things like that that you know I would like to have you know been able to put a bikini on and look better but it wasn't the end of the world it wasn't my main priority and so sort of 
you know, then 30s slipped by, getting to my 40s, and sort of, um, by then I was active in the, you know, in the Labour Party, by, you know, in my mid-30s, I was really, really active, so, you know, life was busy, um, but in image, it was never about losing weight for image, you know, it, it, that never felt the, the important thing, and um, the health side of it sort of seemed that's something I would have to worry about in the future, that, you know, I was still in my 30s, so I didn't have to worry about that. And, the you know, when I would hear about people saying about... Because, um, you know, we're talking sort of getting on for 15, 20 years ago now, the link with um, type 2 diabetes and being overweight, I don't think it was as clear to... I can't ever remember thinking... Um, I'll get type 2 diabetes if I don't control my weight. That Whereas I think people now know that. I can never remember thinking that, probably not until I was well into my 40s, where I think it start, I started to become aware that um, there, would, there could be long-term health implications if I didn't get control of, of my weight. But still, it seemed like that'll happen to somebody else because I've got quite a healthy diet I don't sit and stuff my face with biscuits and cakes you know I'd like a biscuit and cake as much as the next person and chocolate and stuff like that but not out of sync with what a normal person would eat um and I think also felt that um people and women who did manage to control their weight and stay that sort of perfect size 10 12 were doing it through massive self-denial and self-control and literally sort of never allowing themselves to eat and I would just think well if that's what it takes to look like that I don't want to look like that I love food I love making big lasagnas and big dinners and being able to have a Yorkshire pudding and you know who wants to have to say no all the time to potatoes and Yorkshire pudding so in my head that the, the, the choice was between denial of all nice food and looking like I looked or um you know not not being in denial and being able to sort of but you were happy and that's what's really important isn't it yeah so I was happy and I just thought that the only choice was about denying yourself these things to look thin or being the size I was and being able to eat what I wanted there was still not that link with the long-term effect um, a long-term damaging effect on, on my health. I still thought that happened to other people who were really careless about what they ate and were, you know, sat and just ate bars of chocolate and, and tubs of ice cream. I would think, well, I don't do that. That's how they get like that. And um, so then I remember my blood pressure, when I started to get into like, into my mid-40s, and I've got a really busy life by then. I mean, I was elected by the time I was 39. So I think maybe it's early 40s, I remember going to the doctors and um, my blood pressure had been high. And um, and it was, you know, every time I'd been, and I'd said, oh, I've always had high blood pressure. And he said, well, yeah, maybe it's because you've always been overweight. <laughs> oh, I've not always been overweight. And probably during the period of my records that he was looking at, the blood pressure had been high, my weight had been high. And I think that was the, and I wish that had been the shock that had, shocked me into doing something then because he said I can remember this doctor saying um, and if you don't we're going to have to med- medicate you for your blood pressure if you don't get your weight down but still he never mentioned diabetes or anything like that and again I was still sort of well I feel fine I feel fine with cheeky cheeky so-and-so flipping doctors you know um and still didn't leave and you know I would talk to friends about it and they would all be shocked and say oh 
that's a terrible or a terrible thing to say that. Or go, yes, yes, and then just carry on with my life. And then, but then it did get to the stage, I suppose, by the time, um, you know, later into my 40s, where they were saying, oh, yeah, we're definitely going to have to put you on medication now for your blood pressure. And I was like, oh, dear. And then the diabetes um, diagnosis came about probably how old am I now 52 I was probably 49 and I can't say there was a big lead in. there was no you know people get say they get told they're pre-diabetic I remember going for, and they just did some blood tests and um, were monitoring my blood pressure and everything and then the next time I went they said oh you have to come back for the results of your blood test and I can remember once being told that my my sugars were high and I might be pre-diabetic but then there was nobody told me what I was supposed to do then I sort of it was all you, you really are going to have to lose weight and I remember thinking oh right you know okay I suppose I'm nearly 50 all right then I'll lose weight I will so I was you know thinking about it if you like and then the next time literally it must have been a month or two later I was there for a follow-up check checkup and there was never a moment where somebody said to me oh um I'm sorry I've got to tell you you know you are now of type 2 diabetes it was just in passing she went oh and obviously now you're diabetic da, 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 and, and I went so, what I says what what did you say and she says well now you're diabetic and I went am I I says well I says somebody and she went oh did you not know somebody and I went you're saying that as if sort of this is this is something that I, I knew I says the last time I was here I was told I was pre-diabetic and I should lose weight and now that was only like six weeks ago and so that was the huge shock that I then sort of felt so guilty and thought why didn't I do something about it but that period of sort of coming to terms with you know you are now pre-diabetic and it was such a short window um so then what I, I did do was then sort of went away and looked into it and re- read everything I could obviously had the conversation with the um the the nurse practitioner the special the diabetic nurse at the practice and um, then decided I would do a, a low carb, no sugar. Like, Did it scare you when you got told? That? I yeah, I sort of. It, it was just that it. It felt like sort of the, they were saying as if I should have known this, as if I'd already been told this, as if somebody had talked me through it. There was never that moment of somebody saying, "Oh yeah, yeah I've got some bad news for you today, Mrs. Hutchinson." You, you know, it, and I just thought, "Dear me, that you know," and I having to point out to her you do realize that I didn't know this you're talking to me as if I should know this I've nobody's ever said this yet you're the you're breaking this news to me now I then sort of went on sort of an Atkins low carb low no sugar diet and um lost three stone really quickly um half of which I've put back on I have to be honest but I lost three stone it was really good and my at the next checkup my sugars had went to within the normal range the it went down to 36.1 or something that long I can't remember the HCP whatever it's called and um, that test uh, the blood test and that was really good and, sh- and I said oh right great because I'd heard that sort of you know you could put your diabetes into remission um which was really good, and I said, so that's it, I'm QN. She went, well, no, she's, you'll, you're, you're still going to be diabetic, you know, have type 2 diabetes now. She says, you'll always, you can't just go back to eating like a normal person. And this was that sort of eureka moment, like, oh, my God, why did nobody tell me this? Why aren't people telling 
people in society this because I sort of had this shock had the realization that this had happened to me that I allowed it to happen to me that over the years I hadn't sort of you know the fact that I was confident in how I looked I never really totally took on board what I was doing to my body internally um and then sort of thinking that you can just put it right by then going on a diet and then you can be cured and just go back to sort of you know living a normal life and she went oh no no you'll always she says it's almost like you've broke you've broke your your body you've broke your system and it'll never function yet sort of you know your insulin system or whatever you call it and the technical term I don't know but and it'll never work normally and you will always have to you know either manage your diet manage it through your diet as you're doing or you know if if that doesn't work you'll have to use medication guilt and the stigma having to admit that yeah I didn't listen to everyone I didn't listen to all the experts who say you should you know live a healthy lifestyle and maintain a healthy healthy weight I didn't listen to my mom who was always saying you know you never used to be this size why don't you lose some weight out so I'm happy I'm happy and I think the the message I think I would want someone in my position now who might be that sort of overweight me saying I'm happy, I'm not conforming, they're not telling me what size I need to be, is to say it's not just about what you look like or the fact you can buy clothes and look good. It really is. You know, you are damaging your body. And it it's true. It's sort of... And one of the things that sort of, you know, talking about the the, the, the stigma and the, the perception from society, I think I'd always felt that, I'd always felt that. But I think I, I felt I was part of trying to turn that stigma around, um, that people treat sort of fat people, overweight people a certain way, they assume they're lazy, they assume, make lots of assumptions. And I think part of sort of, because I'd grown up with a kid from the one-parent family, so I would fight against that. You know, people would assume the kid from the one-parent family wouldn't be very bright and wouldn't be, you know, I'd be pregnant at 16 and all of that. And So I'd always sort of fought against these sort of expectations of, of stigma. And I think then when I was overweight and felt that, I almost sort of, that was a challenge to prove people wrong, that, you know, I was as fit as anyone. I could, you know, I could keep up with anybody's activity level. I could, you know, I was as active as anybody I knew. I was, I could achieve, I could go, you know, they would always say, oh, fat people don't really achieve things because they're lazy. And, you know, I became an MP, I was successful, and that my weight had nothing to do with it. So I felt that was part of trying to... Um, you know, stand up for the society, the perception that society has for people who are overweight. The job I do now is is shadow public health. I get lots of criticism. You know, people say, "No, oh, how can she be shadow public health? She doesn't look the healthiest person in the world." Um, you know, she obviously doesn't practice what she preaches, and and you know that's cruel. That's part of the whole sort of stigma and the fat shaming that almost you you've got to be a thin person to be able to be to do this job, rather than perhaps someone who's actually living it and experience experiencing the you know the battle with with obesity um that it it makes me so passionate about sort of wanting to get it right for the next generation because you know I didn't start off as I said I started off as a you know a slim a slim kid um you know 
a slim young woman and became overweight over a long period of time. I'm 52 now. And it worries me when I see the statistics and the evidence in schools when I look around at the kids and you can see the numbers who are overweight and obese. And it's, you know, one in five when they start school, at primary school, are overweight and obese. And that rises to one in three by the time they leave primary school. And, um, you know, which is one of the reasons that's drove our policy, the Labour policy, to want to have, you know, try and have the healthiest generation of, of kids in the world. Because if they, at the age of five, are overweight, and then at the age of 11, a third of kids at the age of 11 are overweight, where are they going to be when they're 52? Like, it took me a long time to get to where I am. And I know how I'm battling to try and, you know, get the weight down and to get healthy. Where are they going to be? And and also, it's the cost to them, but also then the cost to society. You know, the cost of obesity to society is six billion a year, the, the estimate is now. Six billion a year, the medical costs of conditions related to being overweight and obese and they say it's a further 10 billion um, the cost of uh, diabetes on society and you know I don't like the thought that I'm a burden on society that my you know choices in life has led to me having this condition that is going to cost society money but all of these young people they're taking time bombs absolutely ticking time bombs and we've got to do something about it we've got to turn that round and also the social the last thing I would say is about the social inequality with regard to obesity because when you look at the the stats um 60 percent of the most deprived boys aged 5 to 11 are predicted to be overweight or obese by 2020 compared to about 16 percent of boys from the most affluent group. So what we're seeing now is like a reversal of Victorian Britain. In Victorian Britain, um, the waifs and strays were skinny, and now it's the other way around. The more affluent a person is or a child is, they're going to be slimmer. The poorer a child is or a person is, are more likely to be overweight or obese. So the, there's a real shift happened, and... Um, that that's access to food. There's all the things I've talked about. You know, we talk about food deserts as well. Often in the poorest areas, there's least access to healthy food and where there's a takeaway on every street corner and every shop in between. Um, so I think, you know, there is a lot we need to do to turn this around. Otherwise, you know, those were destined, were, were, you know, the destiny for those children that we spoke about is dire. Sharon Hodgson. And if you'd like to find out more about Sharon Hodgson, go to SharonHodgson.org. Next week, we've got another incredible guest um, with an amazing story. We've also got in the pipeline a bit of a Q&A session and a bit of a roundtable discussion with some absolutely key figures that I think you'll really, really enjoy. So if you could email questions to hello at theboss.org. Alternatively, you can find us on Twitter, you can find us on Facebook, and we'll be sure to write down your question on anything to do with weight loss, weight gain, or anything at all, really. Thank you so much for listening. I really, really do mean it when I say that we all appreciate it. If you think this has been useful, please do share this podcast to some of your friends, maybe in a WhatsApp group, maybe tag them on Facebook or Twitter, or simply just send them the link. 
If you could also rate us on iTunes, I know everybody asks you to do it, but it is so important for the algorithm of podcasts. That would mean a lot to us. I really look forward to speaking to you next week. Thank you again for listening. Ciao. Adios.